Welcome to the Audiences Podcast, the show that helps you discover new audiences and learn how to develop your own. I'm your host, Francesco Dorazio, founder and CEO of Pulsar, an audience intelligence platform for researchers, marketeers, and PR professionals who like to put audiences at the core of everything they do. And I'm Sal Morton, producer of the Audiences Podcast and person in charge of keeping us all on track. So what's the podcast about, friend? So every episode focuses on a cultural trend, an idea, a brand, or a new emerging behavior, and ask our expert guest three simple questions about it. Who's the audience of the thing? How has that audience evolved over the past few years? And where is it going next? So this episode, The Audience of Misinformation, you recorded this in Austin live with Sarah Brent from NewsGuard. How was that? Oh, that was fun. That was the first podcast episode. It was in sunny Austin. It was uh, at IEX, which is this amazing innovation tech um, conference in research. So it was quite an interesting setting and it was live. So it was a very interesting baptism of fire for the podcast. Yeah, I bet there's like a lot of noise to contend with and people moving around in your eyeline and things like that yeah there was a live audience uh so it was interesting as a as an experiment as well because we were doing it for the first time but at the same time we also had a live audience so there was a mix between a conference and an interview and uh, and a podcast and um and it was really fun because we had sarah from newsguard and uh we were discussing how misinformation has ramped up um, in the last few years and uh, what are the drivers of that change, but also how things are changing again with the um, um, rise of generative AI. So it's a very interesting conversation for sure. Let's get into it, shall we? Let's do it. Today, we are exploring the audiences of misinformation and I'm joined by Sarah Brandt who is the Executive Vice President of Partnerships at NewsGuard. Welcome to Audiences, Sarah. How are you doing? Doing great, Fran. I'm honored to be on the inaugural episode of Audiences. Thanks for having me. So thanks for joining us. It's, uh, it's amazing to have you guys on the show. And uh, you didn't have to travel so far, right? You're from Austin. No. Well, right, you're a, based in Austin. I'm based in Austin. I'm not a Texan. I'm a Minnesotan. Uh, relocated to Austin two years ago, and I'm about 10 minutes away. So it's good to, good to <laughs> be here with you all the way from London. Amazing. So um, the topic of today, as I was saying, is pretty special. It's misinformation. And we're going to ask, who is the audience of misinformation? How has it evolved over the past few years? And where is it going next? Um, I remember my first encounter with misinfo as a force to be reckoned with um, in the 2016 presidential elections. Mm-hmm. And I remember doing research on the audience of a conservative media outlet and realizing that about 98.5% of the top sources of content that they were sharing when talking about the election uh, were from publications that did not actually exist as editorial organizations. Um, for example, the Denver Guardian. Yep. And um, why the few things have happened since then? So Sarah, what was your first encounter with Misinfo and how did you get involved in the space? First encounter, I'm sure, I'm sure my first encounter dates back many, many years. But in terms of first encounter with dealing with this topic as kind of a a cultural phenomenon and a societal phenomenon is probably in line with yours, the 2016 election. And um, I'm sure folks remember not so fondly the the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And there was a lot of 
a lot of attention being paid to Facebook and its you know, perceived and probably rightfully perceived inaction and, and lack of attention paid to misinformation and the way they just let the Denver Guardian and all of its ilk and all these phony websites spread like wildfire with no intervention. So how did I get involved? Uh, just a, a few years after that election and uh, at a time when there was growing focus on the topic, um, two veteran journalists, Stephen Brill and Gordon Krovitz, got the idea to try to do something about this problem of misinformation in a different way than some of the social platforms or other entities were trying to tackle the problem. They were trying to refine their algorithms or develop technological solutions to misinformation. Stephen Gordon, they are veteran journalists, and they thought, you know, this is fundamentally a journalism problem, misinformation. And to effectively counter and detect misinformation, we need to use journalistic skills and an actual journalist. So they started this company, NewsGuard. And uh, what we do at NewsGuard is we are a team of journalists, trained journalists, who apply that human expertise to uh, track misinformation, track the sources spreading misinformation, uh, provide trust ratings for sources, and also track the top narratives that are being propagated by those, uh, those sources of misinformation. So I learned about this company just as I was getting off the ground. I had you know background in journalism and high school and college and, and some freelance work after college, was passionate about the topic. And I thought it was an incredible approach to, you know, supporting an industry and trying to protect an industry that I loved and cared about. So I got on board and there ever since. What are, one of the things that I like about the, the news guide approach to misinformation is that it starts from the context instead of from the content. One of the things that we notice is that if you take, um, a picture or a headline in their own right, they tend to be accurate, but when they, you associate them, uh, you just exposed a specific headline to a specific picture, the meaning of either and probably change and the outcome of having both together tells a different story than if you were looking at, um, each in isolation. So that's a really interesting space where a lot of misinformation is created when you associate a suggestive headline with a picture that says the opposite and all of a sudden a new meaning emerges. And that's why I like the NewsGuard approach where you guys are effectively rating the credibility of um, outlets so that you can alert the audience as to the context of where that story comes from rather than effectively deeming whether a piece of content is misinformation or not. Is that exactly. correct? Exactly. That's a perfect way to put it. Um, so we took a different approach than the approach of, say, a fact-checking organization, which is to your point, they're looking at a headline, they're looking at a statement by a politician, they're looking at an article, and they're determining, is this true or false? We realize that's very reactive, and it's, it's not very scalable. What we do instead is we look at the top purveyors of information or misinformation as a whole. We look at news sources, and we look at, historically, what are their journalistic practices? What is their likelihood of spreading misinformation? What is their motivation or ideology? We provide a trust rating, which then can inform you immediately when you see a piece of content from that news outlet. If you immediately have that context, you can inform yourself as to whether a given article they're publishing is likely to be trusted. You can understand what's their potential motivation. Are they trying to convince me of something? Do they have a, they have a particular perspective they're trying to advance? Um, and that allows us to be more proactive in our approach because we're immediately equipping you with information about the source 
whenever it publishes a piece of content. So you can have that context to inform how you think about every article they publish thereafter. Does that get controversial with the publishers or the teams buying those sources when you apply a rating to what they do? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it comes with the territory. We knew starting this company that it's going to be, there are going to be some people who are unhappy with their ratings. Um, you know, the Denver Guardian is probably not too pleased with their rating. Uh, but what we've done is we've tried to build as much fairness to the publishers into our process. So one thing that's really distinctive about what we do and important about what we do, which again, harkens back to our, you know, approach being grounded in journalism is that anytime we're rating a publisher and we're saying anything negative about it, even if it's just a minor critique of one of its practices, we'll actually reach out to the publisher or the editor of that publication to get their comment on that issue that we spotted in our review. Sometimes they'll actually work with us to try to make improvements to their practices, which is a nice little byproduct of what we do. Mm-hmm. In other instances, they'll just give us a comment, sometimes a colorful comment, and we'll include that comment in our rating and, and review so that they can say their side of the story. Makes sense. So let's take a step back from the, from the ratings and let's start from the basics. Like, can you give us a definition of misinformation and disinformation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So misinformation is provably false content and how it differs from disinformation uh, gets to the question of motivation. So disinformation is false content that is advanced with the intention to harm or deceive or sow chaos and confusion, whereas we reserve, uh, we reserve the, the use of the term disinformation for cases where we can say definitively and confidently that there's a, a motivation behind spreading this information. Whereas misinformation is a, is a broader kind of catch-all for this is false information. We maybe can't say with certainty or with confidence what the motivation was, but we know it's false. And are there any types of misinformation and disinformation that you guys see recurring? Is that like a format to the contents that you see ending up in this machine? Yeah, I think the way to think about it is in terms of broad buckets of topics that we consistently see misinformation spreading about. So I think about it in a few main categories. Health, health misinformation is huge. Uh, even before COVID-19, before the pandemic, we were noticing health misinformation is one of the biggest categories of mis- misinformation online. And then naturally with the pandemic, that just exploded. Um, politics, I think when people think of misinformation, politics is probably one of the, the top categories that comes to mind. Um, so that could include everything from domestic politics, so misinformation about elections in the U.S. or abroad, all the way to um, you know, international uh, politics. So uh, misinformation about the war in Ukraine and uh, state-sponsored disinformation. And then we think about uh, other topics like climate change. Uh, that's been you know, a longstanding source of misinformation, and uh, it, it only continues to become more prevalent uh, as concerns about uh, global warming and climate change uh, increase over time. So when you look at all these different kinds of uh, misinformation or disinformation formats that are proliferating, um, has anyone actually quantified what is the footprint of releasing for against the amount of content that is generated every day? Is that like a ratio that hmm. you guys have seen? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, it's kind of tricky to, to quantify. One thing we have done is 
we're really interested in the motivation behind misinformation. And one of the biggest motivators is money. Um, and what I mean by that is ad revenue. So a lot of websites that spread misinformation and disinformation, they run ads, they run programmatic ads. If they have really outrageous, engaging content that gets shared on social media, they get more visits to, to their site, they get more ad revenue. So it's, uh, it's a pretty lucrative business for a lot of them. And we try to quantify the market size, essentially, of, of disinformation um, that's supported by advertising. Uh, and we did this with a company called Comscore. We were able to estimate that the global disinformation uh, machine generates $2.6 billion in ad revenue every single year. Um, so that gives you a sense of the scope of it. And it's, it's big business. It's interesting, that number, because it's, um, it's relatively similar to what we see on, um, on Pulsar, where we are analyzing, for example, the percentage of content in a brand tracker that is at risk of being misinformation. So as you know, we have an integration on Pulsar with NewsGuard, where we uh, provide the rate, the credibility ratings of the sources of news content to our users that can see how narratives develop and where they come from, the source they can trust or not. What we can normally see is that on average, a brand tracker on Pulsar would feature about 2% of misinformation content. And we would see the number going up to even like 5% when you look at topics like climate change or sustainability. And so it floats, but it never goes to like, you know, 40% or 50%. It's always like in the single digits, but it's a very important uh, percentage of that content. Mm -hmm. Is that what you guys see as well in, in terms of like any other analysis that you've seen? Like there's a, there's a strong seed of kind of like misinformation content, but the vast majority of the content is safe, but that strong seed actually has an impact on audiences. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I mean, we look at some of the most notorious publishers of mis and disinformation. And if you visit their website, it's not like everything they publish is, is outright false. You know, they're publishing a lot of accurate content. Maybe they're just syndicating wire content from the Associated Press or, or Reuters. Um, and the reason for that is it, it lends them more credibility. If most of their content looks legitimate, then they publish one outrageous, flagrant, false article. It's that much more compelling and convincing. Um, so that's that's one way to think about it. In terms of the the note about, you know, for a typical brand, you're looking at the proportion of courage of that brand coming from uh, unreliable outlets as opposed to reliable outlets. Um, I think that that makes sense. But I, I would imagine if you look at specific sectors that we know are bigger magnets for misinformation, say pharma or health, I'm sure that ratio would go up quite a bit. Um, I can't tell you how many variations of false narratives we've seen specifically targeting Pfizer, Moderna, or AstraZeneca, you know, so, so many of them. Um, and then there's always the unpredictable of, you know, you could be a, a brand that seemingly has no risk associated with misinformation, and then one day you get swept up in some false narrative. Um, to, uh, to your home country, we've been seeing some interesting false narratives about Varilla, the, the pasta company, that there are supposedly insects in their pasta um, for whatever reason. And so I can't imagine that misinformation was top of mind for Barilla or it was, you know, a, a threat that they perceived for their company. But all of a sudden, unexpectedly, they're swept up in these narratives and they have to act. Um, so it, it can be unpredictable. Yeah. 
yeah, so we we ran um, we ran for a, uh, for a few months uh, this misinformation index, and um, there's obviously a really long tail of brands that show that two percent contribution in terms of misinformation when you look at a brand tracker. But the top end of that index will show brands like Tesla or Disney or Amazon or like being constantly involved. So, and then the healthcare brands obviously were almost like half of the of the top brands in that index. So that checks out for what yeah. we say. Um, how, um, in terms of like the amount of content, the amount of misinformation that gets generated every day, how do you think that will change with generative AI and the way generative AI is actually um, not infiltrating, but being used as a, as a journalistic tool, as an editorial tool? Like we, we spoke to journalists in a, in, a, in a panel in our headquarters in London a few weeks ago. And most of them were talking about how they use um, ChatGPT for creating first drafts of content. And, um, you know, that's just one of the applications, but there are like entire editorial organizations that now use generative AI to produce content. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's, I mean, you know, generative AI, AI is upending everything, but the creation of content and, and journalism is no exception. Um, yeah, to your point, I, I know there are a growing number of news organizations that are starting to write uh, essentially ethics guidelines about their use of generative AI in an effort to be transparent to their readers about the role that generative AI does play. Um, because where we see it becoming more nefarious or risky is when content is, is produced entirely by generative AI with little or no human oversight, and there's no disclosure to readers about that fact. We know ChatGPT is very good at hallucinating, very good at spreading false content and just making up facts. And so if there's no human oversight in vetting in the content that's being published by generative AI, that's a, a big concern. Um, we've done some research on this front. We actually uh, did a few different studies with uh, Google Bard and, and ChatGPT, essentially trying to tempt them into spreading misinformation and, and seeing how easily they would comply. And... Uh, with the older version of ChatGPT uh, 3.5, we found that in 80% of the cases, when we tempted them with a, a false narrative, they would readily spread it and convincingly spread it. In 20% of the cases, they pushed back. Now, when they came up with GPT 4, they actually got worse. So they did not push back a single time. They they were readily they readily spread the misinformation 100% of the time. Um, so that's concerning, and, and we're already starting to see uh, the Kremlin and the Chinese Communist Party actually cite false information from ChatGPT as justification for spreading propaganda. We've seen a few examples of that. And one, one more trend we're tracking on this front that's pretty concerning is the rise of what we're calling news bots. So websites that are so-called news websites, but their content is entirely created or almost entirely created by generative AI, and there's little to no human oversight. We started tracking this a few weeks ago, just two weeks ago. I think we had found 49 websites. Um, as of this morning, I think we were at like 143 websites or, or something. So it, it's it's a pretty um, massive increase in, a, in the number of these newsbot websites. And I imagine it'll only continue in, in that direction. I've seen... Um seen a study on the generative AI impact um, on journalists that you guys produced on... Um, that show that there's a different propensity to uh, generating misinformation depending on the language you prompt the AI yeah. with. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, that's that. That was super interesting for us. So um, 
what our analysts did is they looked at you know a few common false narratives that um, we know are are commonly propagated by the Chinese Communist Party, some relating to the Uyghur population, for example. And uh, we did a, a similar version of that experiment that I described earlier, where we fed those false narratives into ChatGPT and tried to get it to, you know, write a compelling news article or social media posts advancing that false narrative. When we did that exercise in English, we found that ChatGPT pushed back on most of the false narratives, or many of them. But then when we repeated that same exercise in both traditional and simplified Chinese, we found that ChatGPT was much more uh, eager to spread the misinformation. It didn't push back nearly as much. Um, and our understanding as to why that is is because um, ChatGPT is in, in different languages. It's um, it's trained on different data sets depending on the language. Mm. So for whatever reason, the the data that it was trained on in traditional and simplified Chinese must have had fewer caveats, fewer fact checks. Um, it was probably trained on more state-sponsored propaganda in the languages that um, went unchallenged. And there's obviously no standard for the trading data sets to ensure mm -hmm. that this doesn't happen. So different cultures, languages, and countries get a very different experience of generative yeah, AI. Yeah, exactly. That's fascinating. This episode is sponsored by Pulsar. What is Pulsar? Pulsar uses AI to analyze live data from the web and the media to help you understand people at scale and with nuance. We're talking about social media like X, Instagram, Reddit, Pinterest, YouTube, as well as search data and any media from TV and radio to print news and podcasts. And of course, you can bring your own audience data like NPR or CRM to analyze alongside everything else. Brands like Amazon, agencies like McCann, media outlets like The Guardian and organizations like the UN use Pulsar to understand their audiences and create products and messages that matter to them. If you'd like to get a live signal from your audience, get in touch at pulsarplatform.com. So how, um, how do people normally get into contact with, uh, with information these days? Can you give us a few examples that um, you guys encounter most of the time? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is social media, as you would imagine. Um, we, we track misinformation across a range of the top platforms. And, you know, one thing we've certainly been looking at recently is TikTok and its role in spreading misinformation or the ability for a user to come into contact with misinformation very quickly on TikTok. So we, we ran a few experiments um, with young users and users of all ages and essentially had them scroll through their for you page and not actually seek out specific topic areas, um, but we just recorded, you know, what kind of content are they seeing? And we found that within minutes of signing up to the platform and creating an account, many users were coming across false uh, TikToks containing you know, false information about the war in Ukraine or, or health topics, um, abortions and, and other topics. So uh, definitely concerning. Um, and, you know, we also have been looking at Twitter and how the regime change there has led to a change in the moderation policies um, and how you know, accounts that were previously not allowed on the platform are now not only reinstated, but actually in some cases verified and, and given the blue check mark that lends it a, a sense of credibility. Um, and we're seeing a lot of those accounts um, proliferating with misinformation on, on the platform. I think what, what's interesting about the, the dynamic by which misinformation spread is that uh, traditionally we've been looking at 
how individuals as agents are spreading that specific message. But with the other kind of AI, the recommendation system type AI that most platforms have moved to, for example, you mentioned the For You page before, mm -hmm. um, have you seen an increase on the dynamics of diffusion, uh, given that now it doesn't rely anymore on humans actively sharing it, but it gets automatically repurposed and reshared by the platforms, which now all include the kind of like for you type algorithmic curation delivery mechanism like Instagram, uh, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter as well now. Have you seen an increase in how this information is spreading or is it similar to before? Yeah, it, it's it's a really interesting and, and, a, and a good point. I mean, it's it's difficult to compare platform to platform. You know, how do you assess whether one platform is better or worse than the other? Um, it, it's a little challenging to find standard metrics, but I think you're absolutely right to point out that when you have an algorithm that doesn't require anyone to even share the piece of content, it just feeds you the content, it's that much easier for you to come into contact with misinformation. So say you're on a, a platform where there isn't that AI algorithm at play and you're only friends with people who have a, you know, clean bill of information spreading, you know, they're not spreading misinformation, you might not come into contact with it, but then you go on TikTok and even if you're not following people who spread misinformation, even if you're not actively seeking it out, you can still be fed that false content. So it just widens the number of opportunities you have to come into contact with the false content. And when you, when you come into contact with a content, do you think the way that content spread is similar to what we see with a news cycle, for example, when there's, you know, initial attention, there's a catalyst moment, then there's a spike and then it dies out? Or do you see sharing, spreading more as a cultural trend, like a long-term narrative that kind of like festers in the background and sometimes spikes up and down, but it's always there. It doesn't completely disappear and doesn't completely appear out of nowhere. Yeah, it's a bit of both, really, depending on the narrative. You know, there's certainly misinformation narratives that are a flash in the pan. They, you know, rise and fall with the news cycle. But then there are those evergreen false narratives. You know, uh, misinformation about climate change is one. We've seen that around for decades, and it's continuing on. We're still seeing the same false narratives denying the role of humans in climate change, for example, um, not really going anywhere. Uh, election misinformation is interesting. You know, there was a lot of misinformation around the 2020 U.S. presidential election, you know, claims of widespread voter fraud, irregularities, claims the election was stolen. That persisted for a while. We kind of forgot about it. And then you see the CNN town hall last week with President Trump, and then we're seeing a huge resurgence in those false narratives about the elections. So there are those, yeah, there, there are misinformation narratives like that that'll fester, and then it just, uh, all it takes is something in the news to bring it back to life. And then the purveyors of that misinformation will capitalize on that moment and they will take advantage of it um, and spread it to their audiences. What, what I find fascinating about that dynamic is that it makes misinformation more akin to a cultural trend than just a piece of news that is getting some attention. So, uh, and you guys have a product that I also find really interesting called misinformation fingerprints. Um, and can you tell us a bit about that product and um, and then what I want to know specifically about the fingerprints is how many new misinformation fingerprints do you identify on a daily basis or on a weekly basis and how long do they last on average if you mm -hmm. have that data? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so what I described previously about our work is our reliability ratings. So those are the ratings that we do when we're 
rating the trustworthiness of a news source. What you're referring to is a secondary line of work, our misinformation fingerprints. And what that is, is a constantly updated library or catalog of the top false narratives spreading online across topic areas. It's, it's broader than fact-checking because we're looking at broad narratives rather than evaluating individual articles or claims. We're looking at what is as a narrative that is spreading across the internet, across multiple sources, across multiple social hosts. Uh, and we're able to catalog that and um, chronicle all the examples where we saw that spreading online. Um, so we don't have the, the same capabilities you have at Pulsar, where you, you have the ability to track, um, you know, shifts in a, a narrative over time and, and shifts in the audience. Um, so I think that's where your intel is, is best equipped to come in and, and, and um, kind of give a sense of when, when a narrative is emerging and, and when it's uh, dying out, so to speak. Um, the life cycle can vary, though. It, it can be days, it can be weeks. Um, and in terms of how frequently we're adding new false narratives to our database, it's probably between five and 10 a week, um, really running the gamut from almost every week, there's a new false narrative about the war in Ukraine that um, we come across. Then there's um, some of those niche ones, like what I mentioned about Barilla, you know, some, yeah. some company in the news. There's always uh, some election uh, misinformation or some domestic political misinformation. Um, and then health misinformation is just perennial. So that's kind of big, like every week, five to 10 broad narratives, yeah. information pop up and then some of them survive and some just die out. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and we're only dealing with provably false information. So there's a lot of questionable information in those gray areas. There's a lot of opinionated content. We don't touch that. We just deal with what's black and white, what's definitively false. Um, and that's what makes it into that group of five to 10 every week. So yeah, it's big. Um, some have a, a wider reach than others. Um, some are smaller and shorter lived, but, but some are definitely uh, quite impactful. Let's get into the audience behind those. So if you look at the, the narratives that are out there, there are people that are the audience of those narratives in the sense that they're like creators of those narratives and they're like pushing them. And then there's the audience of the sharers and, uh, the sharers are they, they tend to be of two kinds. They're like the believers of the narrative, uh, who are kind of like echoing the message or the commentators who are outraged at that narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, is that the way you look at it or do you see other kinds of audiences involved in this? Yeah, I think those are, those are two main ways to think about it. Um, you know, there is also the audience of the, the debunkers, right? people who are fact-checking the misinformation. Yeah. Um, it's always the imperative that that is done in a responsible manner that doesn't actually result in amplifying the misinformation. But I'd say you could, you could probably categorize that into the, the outrage, uh, the outrage buckets. I think that. Yeah. 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 That, that's actually, <laughs> that's what we see. Like the main thing that pushes people to, or that drives people to share misinformation is emotional and that emotion is usually outrage mm -hmm. either because you buy into that narrative and therefore yep. you're sharing the thing that makes you mad or because you don't buy into that narrative. And so you're outraged that someone out there will buy into it. Yeah. Um, so the scale usually comes from the, the sharers. so I like to deep dive into that type of audience. So creators kind of like would have their own agenda, but it's interesting to understand how they manage to get the amplification they need via the sharers. 
And so given the range of topics and channels that uh, Deliver Me is even for, an obvious question is whether there's a common denominator or, or a, a typical profile of someone that buys into misinformation. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think I think it gets back to the word you used, um, outrage, right? Misinformation is effective if it preys on our emotions and if it unlocks some some deep-seated feeling or opinion we have and it plays on that, um, that will, uh, you know, have a higher likelihood of someone, someone sharing it or spreading it or believing it. So in terms of the, the common profile of someone spreading misinformation, it's, it's really hard to just boil it down into one profile because we see misinformation spreading from folks on the ideological left all the way to folks on the ideological right, folks who have a specific passion for natural health and a specific distaste for pharma and vaccines, you know, um, people who are skeptical of government. Um, it, it just runs the gamut. And so I think the one unifying factor is, you know, a sense of being wronged or, or a sense of outrage. Um, and then when you find a, a false narrative that plays into your propensity to be propensity to be upset about something it's just going to be that much more successful and you're gonna yeah you're gonna share it or you're gonna be angry about it and you're gonna comment on it and it's gonna feed that flame and, and enable that narrative to uh, spread more widely so the people that produce misinformation are actually really good at audience intelligence they really <laughs> understand what drives yeah. people yeah. Um, we looked at four narratives to map onto the types of misinformation that you were describing before. We looked at the 15-minute city, biological weapons in Ukraine, depopulation and climate needs. So let's look into the first one. So the 15-minute city is like an urban planning and design concept that aims to create livable and sustainable communities where residents can access most of their daily needs within the 15-minute walk or bike ride from their homes. Sounds great, right? But not quite. There's a lot of interesting theories on how this is a plot to imprison people in their local neighborhoods. The second one is about the use of uh, biological weapons in, um, in Ukraine and Russia's claiming without a lot of evidence that biological weapons are being developed in labs in Ukraine with support from the United States. Um, obviously, multiple investigations have found zero evidence of this. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is uh, the depopulation narrative, which is the theory that suggests that there's a deliberate and covert agenda by powerful individuals or organizations to reduce the global population. And the theory often claims that various methods such as mass sterilization, forced vaccinations, and intellectual har harmful substances in the, in the environment um, for engineer pandemics, plandemics, mm -hmm. uh, as the famous kind of like... Uh, documentary um, calls them, are being used uh, to achieve this goal. Again, no scientific evidence to back any of these claims, but um, and climate meets, which are things like climate change is a natural cycle, not due to human activity, climate change is caused by the sun, global warming has stopped or slowed down, or climate models are unreliable. So we looked at this kind of like four blocks of narratives and um, we profiled the audience that is sharing them and, and what we found is that um, the most common denominator for these audiences is that the vast majority are um, kind of like relatively young males in the kind of like 20s to mid-30s um, at the top misinfo producers and, and buyers of misinformation. And they're kind of like integrating those narratives with 
traditional conspiracy theories such as QAnon and uh, with the alt-right manosphere space. Um, they're relatively right-leaning with top influential voices being an interesting cluster of um, Trump, Tucker Carlson and Elon Musk um, and associated with beliefs like nationalism, Brexit and the mix, for example. Um, there's also a gender component. So this whole kind of like a manosphere online influencers such as Cernovich and Peter Sweden became the main source of misinfo narratives. And then across um, different misinfo narratives, um, you have like COVID skeptics, pandemics believers, anti-vaxxers, uh, they're kind of becoming the main audience of most of the narratives that we see. Um, and then obviously there's a really interesting dynamic where QAnon um, uh, basically takes words of statements that um, can be repurposed out of context and memified and produces them into social media content and that gets shared by these audiences that get, in, that get behind them. Um, so the, the obvious question that comes from this analysis is, is political affiliation a predictor of misinfo buy-in? Like, do conservative audiences buy into misinformation more than liberal audiences? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think, um, first, the analysis you're able to do is, is fascinating. It's really cool. Um, I think, you know, it's important to consider that the four narratives you looked at maybe tend to be more appealing to a conservative audience. So that might explain uh, some of what, we're, what you're seeing. Really, when we, when we look at sources spreading misinformation, false narratives uh, about misinformation, we see it coming from both sides. Um, one, one phenomenon we see is something called pink slime websites, which are websites that look like run-of-the-mill news websites. Usually they're uh, parading as local news websites. But what they don't tell you is they're actually run by or funded by a political operative, a super PAC or a political campaign or, or some major political influencer. Um, so what they're really feeding you is secret partisan propaganda masquerading as news. And the reason I bring that up is we see dozens of these pink slime websites that are promoting liberal causes and candidates. And we see the same thing promoting conservative causes and candidates. So it's it's not an issue of one side or the other. It's it's really a, a universal kind of bipartisan issue. Yeah, we've actually um, analyzed both the pink slime audiences on on both sides, <clears throat> and what we find is that um, there's um, that that there is definitely like a left leaning liberal audience to misinformation. The scale is quite different, though, in mm. terms of like how many pink slimes websites are leaning on the left and how many pink slimes uh, websites are leaning on the right. Uh, but what uh, what is interesting is that the the left leaning audience, when they uh, get involved in misinformation as um, as believers, obviously they are like acting as the conservative audience promoting kind of like right leaning narratives. But there's another use case where, and this is the biggest proportion of the left leaning audiences that we see, that tends to be involved in misinformation uh, by sharing their outrage at misinformation. Mm -hmm. And what we notice is that they tend to have uh, a bigger network with bigger reach and bigger engagement potential. And so therefore they end up somehow, even though the volumes are lower, but they end up promoting the same narratives that are misinformation at the same level than the conservative audience tends to promote 
even though they are like much bigger in terms of volumes. So the question is, how do we get out of this? Like, <laughs> you know, is it better not to talk about it at all? Or is it better to talk about it and explain why something is wrong? Yeah, it's a, it's a million dollar question. Um, there are, you know, responsible, there are theories about, uh, evidence-backed theories about the responsible way to debunk a false narrative. Think of it as like a sandwich or an Oreo where you first say what the, what the truth is or you say, no, X, Y, Z did not happen. Then you explain what the false narrative was and then you end with a reiteration of that's false, this is what the truth is. So you want to leave, when you're debunking a piece of content, you want to leave the reader with the most salient memory being what the truth is. You don't want them to remember what the falsehood is because the way our memory works, it could, we could forget the, the debunk part and just hold on to that, that false narrative. Um, so it's, you know, in terms of when you're amplifying a false narrative by sharing something that you're outraged by, be careful to to do so in a way that very clearly debunks it and and be careful not to contribute to that phenomenon. Um, how do we get out of it? I mean, I think there's a big role to be played by the social platforms that, you know, really are the gatekeepers and have the have the uh, you know, the microphone and and are the reason and and the medium through which most of this misinformation is spreading. And you know, don't get me wrong, they've some of them have made good improvements and they've invested in trust and safety teams and, and are, are certainly doing better, but there's, there's a long way to go clearly um, and a lot to be done. So final question then, are we winning? <laughs> you know, I, would, I don't think it's fair to say we're winning, um, <laughs> but I think we're doing a little better and, and I'm, I'm heartened to see there is an increasing number of organizations, groups, individuals who are focusing on this problem. And uh, we're continuing ch to chip away at it little by little. Great. And with that, that's um, all we have time for today. I want to thank you, Sarah, again for joining us and share your insight and amazing work on this information you guys are doing on NewsGuard. Thank you so much, Fran. I want to thank the audience for uh, tuning in on our very first episode. Until next time, thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Audience's podcast, the podcast that helps you discover new audiences and learn how to develop your own. Me and the team would love to hear your feedback on the episode and on the podcast in general. Let us know which audiences we should explore next or anyone we should get on the show. Do reach out on our social media or email us at higheraudiencespodcast.com. As always, please rate, review and subscribe. Till next time.